Welcome to the study of God's Word with pastor and author Ed Taylor, recorded live from Calvary Chapel in Aurora, Colorado. To learn more about the many resources available through Abounding Grace Media, visit us online at calvaryaurora.org or download our free app on all platforms. And now, here's Pastor Ed to take us into our study. Amen. Amen. Would you take your Bibles and open them to Daniel chapter 2 and Acts chapter 9. Daniel chapter 2 and Acts chapter 9 in a Bible study that I've entitled, No One is Beyond the Reach of God. In chapter 2, we met this man by the name of King Nebuchadnezzar. And one of the things that we learned about Nebuchadnezzar is that he's a very angry man. He is a man filled with rage. And he has absolute control, and as as it's been said, absolute power has a tendency to corrupt absolutely. And so it only makes his anger issue greater, where at at the flip of a switch, at the snap of a finger, he can call upon death in someone's life. And he's an angry man. Notice in verse 1, of Daniel chapter 2, it says, One night during the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had such disturbing dreams that he couldn't sleep. And I'm reading from the New Living Translation. He called in his magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers, and he demanded that they tell him what he had dreamed. And as they stood before the king, he said, I've had a dream that deeply troubles me, and I must know what it means. Then the astrologers answered the king in Aramaic, Long live the king! Tell us the dream, and we will tell you what it means. But the king said to the astrologers, I'm serious about this. If you don't tell me what my dream was and what it means, you'll be torn limb from limb, and your houses will be burned into heaps of rubble. But if you tell me what I dreamed and what the dream means, I'll give you many wonderful gifts and honors. Just tell me the dream and what it means. Now here is this man behind many doors, surrounded by security, a man of great stature, a man of great prestige, as far away from God as a person could be. Not only is he far away from God, but he has no desire for God because he sees no need for God. Not only is he in that position, but he's also a very angry man, caught up in himself, self-centered, self-righteous. He would be a man that we could easily dictate and conclude that he's unreachable. I mean, after all, who's going to go in and talk to Nebuchadnezzar? Who's going to have the the boldness and the courage? Let alone, if you have the boldness and the courage, who's going to have the access? At this time, there are many people that that have been kidnapped and taken captive and brought back, but they're afraid for their lives. Who would have access And yet, there is a divine setup of bringing Daniel right very into his presence, right into the very presence. I mean, Daniel's going to be so close to Nebuchadnezzar, he'll be able to smell his breath and feel the warmth off of his skin. He's going to be that close. Why? Because no one is unreachable. And I wonder today, if you have anyone in your life right now, when you think of them, you think, there's no way... They will never believe in Jesus Christ. They are unreachable. Now, 
I'm sure there's a little tension in your life when it comes to that because it's not that you want to think that way, but their life is so messed up and so damaged. Their hearts are so hard. They're so critical. They're so anti-God. And the bottom line, really, when you know them, you work with them, they're a family member, they're your neighbor, whoever it might be, the bottom line is this. It would take a miracle for them to get saved, which is exactly what God does anytime he saves someone. But we write them off. I wonder who's listening to me today that have been written off yourself. Whether it was your, you looking at your own life and going, you know, this is the best it's going to get. I might as well just eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow I die. And you just threw yourself into sinful, riotous living. Or those that were around you. I can think of many people of testimony after testimony in our own little fellowship here that they were written off completely. Like there, there was literally no hope for their lives. And yet, Jesus entered in. Because no one is beyond the reach of God. No one. Not one person. Just say that with me. No one. Say it. No one. Believe it. No one's beyond God's reach. No one. While we might write someone off, God doesn't write them off. Truly, sometimes the people that we think are far away are actually a lot closer than we think. It's those that have a tendency to be the most disruptive, the most resistant, the, the, the arguers, the ones that are responding in violent ways to the gospel are actually the closest. As we've been inviting people to church, they say no. As we ask somebody to tune in the radio, they say no. You know, isn't that that familiar response is, hey, I'm glad you found Jesus. You needed him. And they look at your life and go, oh yeah, you needed him. And then there are those guys at work that are always making fun of you. I remember the first time somebody called me Bible boy. I was walking out to my car with my big Bible in my hand, going home from work, and there was a guy coming in from the other side, and we're walking in the parking lot. I said, hey, Bible boy, and he knocked the Bible out of my hands. And had I not been saved, we would have thrown down right in the parking lot of work. Right there, that's the kind of guy I was, and that's the kind of guy he was. But I picked up my Bible, got in my car and I started yelling in the car but I was still I was still mad but I didn't fight I was still a new believer but Bible boy with all the responses you know they may be coming closer to the Lord than you know sometimes those that protest the most and argue the most and put up the biggest defense are actually the closest to the kingdom of God we're going to learn that in the life of Nebuchadnezzar but I want to introduce you to another angry man today by the name of Saul. Would you turn over to Acts chapter 9 with me? Acts chapter 9. Another man with another anger issue. And yet this man was so far from God that he thought he was close to God. Now we have a word for that. We, we call that self-deceived. Where you can be caught up in religious expression. You can be caught up in a form of religion you can be doing things that you believe honor God, and in reality, you're as far away from God as an unbeliever. And that's where Saul of Tarsus was. He was an angry man who covered up his sinful behavior with religion. And even as you may have fallen into that category of people that thought that you would never amount to anything, a drain on society, a pain in your family, a strain in your neighborhood, now 
You have a testimony of how God picked you up out of the miry clay and put your feet upon a rock. And it's interesting to me, in the family of churches that we're a part of, known as Calvary Chapel, that many of those pastors that have been given the privilege of overseeing churches within Calvary Chapel come from a very hard, difficult background, myself included. In that very first generation, uh, they wrote a book to introduce us to some of the men that got radically changed during the Jesus movement in the late 60s and 70s. And on the title, the subtitle, the book is called Harvest. Uh, My pastor, Jeff Johnson, his story is in there. And the subtitle of the book says this, and I quote, gang members, drug addicts, mental patients, society's rejects. Chuck Smith's amazing story of Calvary Chapel and the unlikely leaders that God called. And you know, God is not done calling the unlikely men and women to serve and to lead in his church. Like he is not done. There wasn't just a a little capsule of time where God was calling people out of the world so that the testimony of their lives would speak greatly to the grace of God. He's still doing that work. The thing is, we don't know what God's going to do with that person that we invite to church. We don't know what God's going to do when we give that Bible to someone. We don't know what God's going to do when we pray for someone, but we'll never know until we reach out. It's true, we don't know, but we'll never know if we don't open ourselves to be used by God. Jot it down in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27, it says, God chose things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they are wise. And he chose things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. God chose things despised by the world, things counted as nothing at all, and used them to bring to nothing what the world considers important. And as a result, no one can ever boast in the presence of God. You may be familiar with that passage as God choosing the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. He's still choosing foolish things. Even today, you may examine your life and see foolishness. You see the foolishness of who you are and where you are. You see the folly of your life, the folly of your decisions. You're the perfect candidate through your surrendered obedience to be used by God. You're the perfect candidate Another thing my pastor taught me over the years is that when you throw a rock into a pack of dogs, the one that got hit is the one that yelped. And today I want to introduce you to a man that yelped because he got hit by the grace of God. Now somebody, I posted this, I posted this phrase on social media recently and I got this personal message, why would you ever throw a rock into a pack of dogs? I'm like, serious bro, it's a proverb, man. I would never throw a, pa- a rock into a pack of dogs. A pack of cats, maybe, but not dogs. I posted something about cats and I got a lot of grief for that too. Stop it. If you have any complaints, send them to Jason at calvaryaurora.org. Don't send them to me. Don't send them to me. Verse 1, chapter 9. Meanwhile, Saul was uttering threats with every breath and was eager to kill the Lord's followers. And so he went to the high priest and he requested letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus asking for their cooperation in the arrest of any followers of the way he found there. He wanted to bring them, both men and women, back to Jerusalem in chains. Now, is that a man you would want to share the gospel with? (laughs) He is breathing in and out threats and murder. 
He's asked permission from the religious leaders of the day to go to the city of Damascus and literally destroy lives, arresting people. We know later in his testimony, he even would go to the length of killing people. He would go to the length of destroying lives for what he believed was his religious zeal. And so here's the powerful, the famous, the infamous Saul of Tarsus. He was Roman. He was a citizen of Roman descent, educated by the Greeks, and he learned Roman law and Greek philosophy. He was also Jewish, and so he was raised with a strong religious foundation, and he decided to become what was known as a Pharisee. A Pharisee was a hyper-conservative man dedicated to the scriptures. They they would be today what we might refer to as a fundamentalist. They would fight for the authority of the scriptures. And they started out so well. Saul of Tarsus is exhibit one of someone that will never get saved if it was up to us. You, You think how you would avoid a man like this. Isn't that what you do with angry people? You avoid angry people. It's not that you're seeking out, I'm gonna find the most angry, crazy, wicked person, and I'm gonna share the gospel with them. No, you're like, man, I do not wanna deal with an angry man or a woman right now, let alone someone that's bent on annihilation and destruction. Literally, he's inhaling and exhaling hatred and threats. It's this, as we come to verse one, it says, he was uttering threats with every breath. It speaks of his lifestyle, his mannerism. His whole life was consumed with destruction. You could literally feel it in his presence and see it in his face. Something snapped in this man as you study through the book of Acts. I believe as he witnessed the solid, valid testimony of Stephen, as he witnessed the amazing testimony of a man dedicated to God, He was shaken in his own beliefs and became a crazed madman. Later on in Acts chapter 26, verse 11, it would say, many times, Paul's speaking of his testimony after he got saved, many times I had them punished in the synagogues to get them to curse Jesus. I was so violently opposed to them that I even chased them down in foreign cities. Can you imagine the scene that day? Can you imagine imagine if we got word that Saul of Tarsus came to Denver? And we would have our prayer meetings. We would, okay, we have a, you know, who wants to give 10? And a brother stands up and stops me. I'll do the give 10. Well, let's pray for Saul. And can you imagine some of the, probably two out of the three points would be, take him out. Take him out. He's destroying lives. Uh, Maybe someone would be very spiritual and say, we're going to pray the Psalms for Saul. Break his teeth. Wipe him out. And then there would be that soft spirit that would speak into a room like that and go, no, let's pray for his salvation. And everyone would go, okay, let's pray for his salvation, all right. And as you would pray, one side of your mouth for salvation, the other side to take him out. I mean, you have to put yourself inside the story in your own life. What if Saul was going after your family? What if he had your address? I mean, Saul, the way he's acting today, we would refer to as a terrorist. He was out of, his, out of his mind and yet fully convinced that he was doing God a service. He's not content with the death of Stephen. He's willing to travel 200 miles to the city of Damascus, a city that happened to be filled with Christians. 
And you know, on the way to Damascus, if he, depending on what road he took, he would have gone through the city of Samaria, which was experiencing a very large Christian revival, but it would also inflame his anger and make him even more committed. I like this, if you noticed in the second verse, it says that they're referred to as followers of the way. Isn't that a great way to describe those that follow Jesus Christ? We follow the way. Isn't that how Jesus described himself? He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He's not a way. He's not one of many ways. Jesus is the very way. Are you looking for direction in your life today? Are you looking for answers to the questions that you're facing? Are you looking for a way out? Are you looking for a way in? Are you looking for the way? Well, you've come into the company of followers of the way, the way of life, the way of hope, the way of strength, and most importantly, the way of salvation. All throughout the book of Acts, we have this, the early Christians, the early believers, the early followers in Jesus being called followers of the way. You can jot it down in chapter 19, verses 9, verse 23, chapter 22, verse 4, chapter 24, verses 14, and verse 22. They're not called Christians yet. They are followers of the way. Notice now verse 3. Speaking of Saul, as he was approaching Damascus on this mission, a light from heaven, and just if you like to write in your Bibles or circle them, uh, even if you have it from the Pew Bible, write in it, I don't care. Circle the word suddenly. And let me tell you something, God can work very fast in your life. Can anybody say amen to that? Have you noticed that in your life? God can work suddenly. I know you've been waiting for years, and I know you've been wondering for months, and I know you've been interceding for what seems like eternity, and I want you to know that God can work suddenly. He can work fast. He can work immediately. Don't give up. Don't give up on trusting God, because suddenly, all of life and humanity is going to be changed. Suddenly. I mean, this guy's on his way. I mean, you can think, with every breath, he's thinking, and he's processing. How am I going to destroy them? Where am I going to find them? Who's going to help me? This is my will. This is, this is God's will for my life to do such great destruction. And suddenly there's this light that shines down around him. And immediately it says, verse four, he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And while he's on the way, this light shines around him. When he was giving this testimony later in the book of Acts, chapter 26, he told King Agrippa that the light was brighter than the sun. This is an overwhelming light. It stops him dead in his tracks. And while he stopped, he hears a voice. And the voice says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting, again, you want to mark in your Bibles, me. This voice from heaven, Jesus speaking to Saul, he has a question for him. And the question was, why are you persecuting me? I love this about our relationship with Jesus Christ. It gives us a lot of insight that you're not involved in some religious expression. 
At least I hope you're not. I mean, you could be in a church service and, and you could be very religious today, but I hope you get out of this religious, repetitive life and you enter into what's a real relationship with God who loves you because we learn something about this relationship with Jesus Christ, and that is Jesus personally identifies with his church. There's a personal identification that he says here that as Saul has taken to persecuting people and hurting people and hurting fellow believers, from, the hev- from heaven's perspective, an attack on you is an attack on Jesus Christ. I mean, that's a pretty powerful thing. Do you know, there are on occasion in our lives where we have relationships where an attack, like, like a mom, a mom and a dad, you know, moms and dads, they take very personally anything that happens to their kids. Is that, does anyone amen that? I mean, that's pretty serious. Like, like anything that happens to our kids, I take it personally. Those are my kids. Uh, from a husband or a wife, a spouse, something happens to a spouse, it's automatically, you, you, you mess with my wife, you mess with me. That, that's my wife. Those are my kids. You extend that in some of the relationships that we have, some of the friendships that we gain in the body of Christ where we take it personally when a brother or a sister is attacked. Where a prayer request goes out for a missionary couple in our church in our heart. Why is it that our heart aches for them? Why is it that we can say, and I can text them, my heart is hurting for you. Why? Because it happened to them. It's like it happened to me. My heart breaks for them. And what they're facing and the pain that was in the room, and the pain that's in the family. The longer I'm around the hurting and the sick and the dying and the difficult situations, the more and more I'm coming to appreciate the shortest verse in the Bible, in the English, Jesus wept. He's keenly in tune with you, and he loves you. He identifies with you. When Jesus views his church, he sees himself in it. You're hurt, he hurts. A deep spiritual connection between you and Jesus. As Jesus is the head of the church, he personally is pained by the hurt in his flock. It's like the body, you know, the human body. We're up late at night. We're going downstairs to the kitchen to get a cup of water. It's really dark in the house and we stub our toe really, really bad on the edge of the couch. And we hold it in so we don't wake anyone else up, but our toe is throbbing. And yet when you stub your big toe, what's hurting? Your whole body. I mean, it just shoots pain through the whole body. And that's how it is with Jesus in a deeper way. And I, I, wonder, I wonder at this moment in Saul's life as he stopped in his tracks, I wonder if he was a little afraid to ask the question that he's going to ask in a moment. I wonder if he's afraid in verse 5 to ask this question, Who are you, Lord? Who are you? I believe that sometime in everyone's life they're going to ask that question. We learn from God as he shares with us in the Bible that he has created man and put eternity into our hearts. Everyone walking on earth today, everyone that's born tomorrow, everyone that's going to be alive hearing my voice has this sense that there's something bigger than themselves. 
Not everyone puts their finger on it toward the God, the creator God. Not everyone puts their finger on it as the God who loves us so much that he sent his only son, Jesus Christ. But everyone deals with this issue of feeling like they are part of something bigger. We have the privilege here, you know, especially up on the hill uh, as we're coming down Hampton and it's a clear day and we see the spread of the Rocky Mountains. Not only is it beautiful and not only is it wonderful and if the colors and the sunset and everything, not only is it majestic, but it also reminds us, you know, there's someone bigger than me. I didn't make the Rocky Mountains. Like I can't even grow a flower in my backyard, let alone make the Rocky Mountains. Or uh, recently we were flying uh, to California and very rarely does this happen, but the, uh, the pilot was really into the flight and he woke us all up to tell us that on the left right now is the Grand Canyon on the left. And I'm like, well, thanks. I better look at it. I happen to be on the left of the plane. And I looked out. I took some pictures of the, I mean, it looked big as high as we were. I don't know how many thousands of feet were in the air, but man, the Grand Canyon was still, it looked huge even being up in the plane. And what does that say to us? But that there is someone, something bigger than us. And I wonder what Saul was, I wonder what he was feeling. The Bible doesn't really say, except that he asked the right question. And at some point in your life, you're going to ask that question, who are you? Who are you? In this case, he uses the word Lord, a place of submission. I believe deep down in his heart, he knew it was Jesus all along. He's been running and running and running nonstop, and now he's stopped. And that is true. You can run nonstop, but eventually you'll be stopped. And Saul is a great picture of this today. The voice replied in verse 5, I am Jesus, the one you're persecuting. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what to do. And what you, I should say, what you must do. You see, Saul of Tarsus was... As it says in the New King James, he was kicking against the goads. He was fighting a battle. He was wrestling against the truth. He was fighting against the truth. And a goad, a goad was a long, eight-foot-long, sharpened pole that was used to encourage oxen to keep them working when they refused to move. And they would just poke them and keep them moving, keep them moving as animals were used in agriculture. Remember the Bible was written to an agrarian society. So many of the illustrations, most of the illustrations, they they were of of the farm, they were of the land. It's very valuable. We don't so much have that type of society anymore. We're more in an industrial nation, but many still, you know, especially if you, a lot of you guys move to the east so you can get some land and you can work some land and you can have that. that that's, why are you kicking it against the goads? Why, why is it that I have to keep prodding you along? And I wonder in Saul's, what was it that kept prodding him along? Can you think in your own life, you don't need to answer now, but can you think in your own life what was prodding you? Was it a coworker that kept prodding you? I mean, I mean, it was just fine while that desk was empty. And then so-and-so got the job. And they just wouldn't stop talking about God. The last thing you wanted to hear. Because that's how you were raised. That's what your grandmother used to tell you. Yeah, yeah, the Bible that they gave you for Christmas. The one that's on the shelf that's collecting dust. And every day you had to go to work. I mean, it was so bad you thought about getting another job. 
It was so bad, you're like, man, I would rather be unemployed than talk about God again. And you were being goaded along. Why are you fighting against the people that God has sent to you? I mean, was it guilt? You know, God used guilt a lot in my life. Not the kind of guilt that, you know, religious guilt that moved you, but I had an understanding, not, not a full understanding from with God's eyes, but I had somewhat of an understanding of the hurt I was causing people. It didn't take a rocket scientist to look on my parents' face and see the disappointment in their eyes in some new thing I did or some new, you know, pick me up in jail or whatever it was that I did. It didn't take. And then later on, it didn't take much to see the disappointment in Marie's mom's eyes of the pain and hurt I caused her daughter and I caused her or... It didn't take long to see, like, like I, I would lay down at night. I didn't cry out to God. I didn't, I didn't want to get my life right. But I sure wasn't happy with where my life was. And that unhappiness was a goad. It, it, was, it was a goad to move me toward God. I can look back now and see and hear the voice of God. Because before, the Bible describes a person that's not saved as blinded to spiritual things. You don't see those things. That's why it can be so frustrating when you're sharing the gospel with someone and they go, I just don't get it. And they're just resistant. I don't want anything to do with it. And you get, you're, you're like, you practice in the mirror for four hours. You had all the right verses. You had them all highlighted. You wrote them down. You memorized it. It was the best gospel presentation you ever gave. And the answer from the person was, no, nah, man, not interested. What? Well, because they're spiritually blind. Only God can open their eyes. Never forget that as you're sharing the love of God with people, some people plant, some people water, but it's only God that gives the increase. And on occasion, we get to be there and see the increase, but never think that it was you that gave the increase. Only God opens spiritual eyes to spiritually dead people. What the go? What were the goats? Certainly. Paul had to wrestle with the testimony of Stephen. Your testimony is so powerful. Your steadfast commitment to Jesus Christ so wonderful in a world where it's so easy to give up and throw in the towel and go on to something else. In a world that just flips through the phone picture after picture and just keep going through and I go to this and I can go to that and I can be like the world needs this steady example of commitment. I'm sure Stephen got to him and he couldn't shake it. Not not only the standing testimony, but Stephen's dying words were gracious and forgiving. I'm sure another goad were the testimonies of Christians that he was attacking. They weren't denying Jesus because they faced imminent death. They weren't denying Jesus because they were going to lose all their possessions. They, They were steadfast. And I know there are many people that seem hard to reach, the intelligent, the religious, especially those that are fighting the truth, those that are kicking the goads, the long pointed sticks of conviction of their own conscience and the truth of the gospel. And like Saul, they know the truth is right. And like Saul, it would make perfect sense to them. And like Saul, they'll fight so hard against the truth because it's penetrating and they don't literally want to change their lives. You wonder, why is it that the gospel seems to affect so little people, so few people? And the answer to that is, is that people do not want to change their lives. 
According to Romans chapter 1, they have created gods in their own image. And this is how they've chosen that, like, especially in our culture, where freedom of choice and freedom to choose is such a value. We value and treasure that. And yet we carry that off and we start to value these, these anti, these choices that are anti-establishment. You know, God kind of be seen as the establishment when all the while you're resisting the love of God in your life. Is that you? Is that you today? You're so caught up in the, the latest cause. You're so caught up in the, in the latest secular teaching, just emphasizing humanity and, and the secular humanistic view of life and, and just how there's no limitation. You know, it's so funny that you see commercials. They go, you can do anything you want. Do you know that's not true? You can't do anything you want. It's not possible. It's impossible. So just in case you see that commercial, I just saw it recently. You can do any, you can be anything you want to be. Not true. You cannot, I'm sorry to break the bad news to you, but you cannot be anything you want to be. You can't. There's a lot of things you'll never be. But that's not negative. That's not a bad thing. Because when you surrender your life to Jesus Christ, you will be exactly how he created you to be. And that God will use you and your talents and the treasures and the intelligence that he's given to you, the education and the places where you are. And he will place you in this world to be who he wants you to be. And you'll live in such great peace and contentment. Saul of Tarsus encourages me that God has a salvation plan for every single person on the planet earth. There's absolutely no one outside of the reach of God's love. Notice verse 6 now. He says, I'm Jesus, the one who you're persecuting. Now get up and go into the city, and you'll be told what you must do. The men with Saul stood speechless, for they heard the sound of someone's voice, but saw no one. And Saul picked himself up off the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he was blind. So his companions led him by the hand to Damascus. This is such irony from God, isn't it? He is on his way to Damascus with great authority, with great power, with great strength, with great determination, and and he's going to fulfill what he believes is the best thing for his life. He's going to just single, I believe part of Saul's heart was he's going to single-handedly destroy Christianity. That's the kind of guy he was. And how does he end up going into Damascus? Blind, being led like a baby by the hand. God has a way of getting your attention. God has a way of getting our attention. Even if you have it all figured out. Even if you think you know it all. God has a way to reveal to you that you don't. Some people ask in this section of chapter 9, well, where exactly is it that Saul got saved? Because I don't see him here raising his hand or coming forward to the altar. I don't see him confessing the Lord Jesus with his mouth and believing in his heart that God raised him from the dead. He doesn't respond to an altar call. He doesn't have some formulaic confession of faith. So where did it happen and how did it happen? Well, the good news is is that there is no formula to salvation. (laughs) There is no formula. 
You know, when we gather together as a church family, I'll usually ask for some type of outward response to an invitation. But even as you watch Jesus give invitations, the response was different. So may the Lord protect us from some sense of formula when it comes to people following Jesus Christ. Where is it that it happened here? It has to happen somewhere in this section. And I tell you, I believe it happens in his response. Somehow between verse four and five, a quickening of Saul's spirit took place. And when he says, who are you, Lord? I believe Saul knows exactly who it is, the one that he's been fighting all along, the one that he's been persecuting, and this is the place of surrender. I believe that this is where he was converted in this moment. And did it require him to raise his hand, yes or no? Did it require him to pray a sinner's prayer? No. Did it require him to walk the aisle and the altar? No. None of those are bad in and of themselves. But none of them save. Only God saves. And he uses a variety of ways to do that. Oh, oh, it's true. It's true that salvation comes through confession of mouth. A confession of your mouth, a, a lifestyle. And you read the rest of of Saul of Tarsus' life, I would say that his life is a confession of his salvation, wouldn't you? I mean, the brother was an amazing man of God. He was used by God to, to write, and in, God inspired half of the New Testament through this brother. There's a confession. Over and over again, Saul, who we later know as Paul, uh, he confesses, not only does he confess, but he expresses that belief over and over again. And I do believe there's a beginning point and there's a theological word for that. I don't, I'm not going to expand it for you for us today, but I do want to share it with you because it's important to understand the pathway of salvation. When a person is saved, he is immediately justified by God. And that's known theologically as justification. Justification happens instantly. It's a legal term that's used to refer to the erasing of sin in a person's life by the blood of Jesus Christ. And we have learned, have we not, church, that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. There is forgiveness found in no other but the blood of Jesus Christ. And his blood completely forgives. And a great way to remember this word justification is to break it down. And it's, it's the perspective that God has toward a person that's born again. And you can think of justification that God now sees you just as if I never sinned. You, it is a legal term of standing and position. That's what born again means. And yet, when a person's born again, if you respond to the gospel today and you're going to leave, you know, this is all going to happen in a few minutes, and then you're going to leave the building, one of the things you'll be surprised about is that you continue to sin. And you're like, wait a minute, man, I'm a believer. I, I love Jesus Christ. Why do I still sin? Because the process after justification is a lifelong process. There's a Bible word for that. You ready? It's called sanctification. Sanctification, the idea of that word sanctify in the English means to be set apart. And the idea of this word sanctification is that ongoing process on the inside of God working in you conforming you, changing you into who? The image of Jesus Christ. And it's ongoing. Some of you are farther ahead than us. Some of you are lagging behind. But we're all on the potter's wheel. That's what was trying to be described by Jeremiah when God wanted to show Jeremiah 
that he would send him into a potter's house so he could see the potter fashion the clay. It took some time. You can put the lump of clay on there, justification, but it was a long time to work it together and weave it together, that's sanctification. But then when that, that pot is taken off and it's, it's fired and, and it's finished and it's taken and it's put on the shelf, there's a final word, and you can look these things. We went in depth in the book of Romans. So if you go on the app or you go on our website, calvaryco.church, uh, you go on the app, you can put these words in the search bar and we studied them in depth when we were in Romans. So those studies are available. But you've got justification is a one-time happens when you're born again. Sanctification is the entirety of your human life. And then the final thing, when you die and meet Jesus face to face, you will have the sum of everything and that's known as glorification. That's when you arrive. Right now, none of you have experienced glorification. There isn't one of us in this room, one of us listening in that have arrived. So stop saying you've arrived. Stop thinking you have arrived. God is declaring to you today with my voice, you haven't arrived. God is still working in you and through you, using all the circumstances in your life to conform you into the image of Jesus Christ. Where was Paul saved? I think that response was the culmination of his lifelong desire to be right with God. Can you spend your whole life in religion and not be right with God? Yes. Can you spend your whole life in religious activity and not have a relationship with Jesus Christ? Yes. Can you be in this church family your entire life and never be born again? Yes. It's not just for the big churches or the big religions or the world religions. It happens right where you are. It is possible for you to spend your whole life religiously acting like you're okay with God and yet be disconnected from Jesus Christ. And the good news is that God loves you so much that he will reach you and he'll do whatever it takes. It says in verse 9 that by the time he comes to Damascus, he remained there blind for three days and did not eat or drink. His life is forever changed. And there is more to the chapter that I would encourage you to read and maybe even listen online when we went through the book of Acts. But I love the other perspective here. Since we're studying the book of Daniel, we'll jump back into Daniel next time. But I love the perspective here because the very next verse in verse 10 is so cool. You know, you've got to understand the sense of humor of God. It says, now there was a believer in Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord spoke to him in vision saying, Ananias. And he had the right answer, right? Yes, Lord. The Lord said, go over to Straight Street to the house of Judas. When you get there, ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. He's praying to me right now. I've shown him a vision of a man named Ananias coming in and laying hands on him so he can see again. And then verse 13, Ananias says, no way. Basically is what he said. But it says here, but Lord, I've heard many people talk about the terrible things this man has done to the believers in Jerusalem. And he's authorized by the leading priest to arrest everyone who calls upon your name. Ananias says, no way am I going to that guy. He's got permission to destroy my life. And God's answer was, go. For Saul is my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles, to kings as well as to people of Israel, and I'll show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. In verse 17, Ananias went, found Saul, laid his hands on him. Thank God for reaching the Saul's in our lives. And might I add, thank God for the Ananias of you.
that will obey God and go to the people that need you the most. The hands, the feet of Jesus Christ on the earth today. Because of this encounter on the road to Damascus, the world was literally turned upside down. That's the power of one man. One man. There may be times in your life where you see yourself as insignificant or you don't really make a difference after all or God can't really use you or you just never measure up. And the story, the true story of the Bible is that God will use you to turn the world upside down beginning with your world and the people that you influence because you're very important to God and very important to the people that love you, the people that are closest to you. May we find ourselves in a place praying and not giving up on those closest to us because no one, absolutely no one, say it with me again, no one is outside the reach of God. Isn't that great? And so, Father, thank you for the privilege of knowing you and being reminded, even as we'll learn about Nebuchadnezzar, he is not outside your reach. You are orchestrating things with the life of Daniel and his friends to get Daniel right there, right into the presence of King Nebuchadnezzar, your spokesman, your mouthpiece, right there. And how exciting it is that you would choose to use us in these last days. May we be men and women dedicated to winning a person to Jesus Christ, discipling them in Jesus Christ, and then sending them out for Jesus Christ, that we would be vessels. Forgive us for giving up on certain people. Forgive us for losing heart and doubting your innumerable favor and power on the earth today. Forgive us for prejudging people because of their behavior or whatever other thing we're dealing with in our hearts, God, and bring us back to simplicity to remember you can save anyone and revival starts with a saved person, a changed life. And if you're here today and you'd say, Ed, I I need, God has reached me tonight well, then I want to give you a chance to respond to the invitation to follow Jesus. And, and we're going to do it different than in uh, Saul. We're not going to knock you down and shine a light in your face. I'm going to invite you to follow. I'm going to invite you to respond. I'm going to invite you to confess. I'm going to invite you to commit right here in this place, whether you're online or listening live in your car, or in your kitchen, or in a jail cell or a hospital room or a retirement home, wherever you may be today. You got your earbuds in because you're podcasting this. Great. God loves you. And this is the timing of God to reach you in this very moment. But for the sake of you here in the building, if you're here today and you say, Ed, I do want to repent and turn away from my sins. I want my life to be changed and for it to matter for God. Would you just stand to your feet today? I want to pray with you. I want to help you fulfill what the Bible says and launch you off in the beginning of your life following God, the rest of your life. Is that you? Let today be the day that you finally surrender your life to Jesus. God bless you. Yes. Is there anyone else? It's always an exciting thing for me, not only to see people respond, but it was a Wednesday night when I responded in a room just like this on a midweek wondering, what am I doing in church? And while I didn't know, God always knew ahead of time I've got a plan for Ed, and I believe God has a plan for you too. Maybe you're down in the cafe. I know more people are sitting down there as it's open, so 
May the Lord bless you down there. Come on upstairs. You can pray with one of the men or women on the prayer team, one of the pastors. But anyone else that would say, God is speaking to my heart, and I want to follow him today. bless you man I see you so does God and so let's talk to God I'm going to pray and you can pray repeat after me if you mean it from the heart you know we call talking to God prayer and so you could say something like this God I come to you today and I ask you to forgive me of all my sin I believe you sent Jesus Christ to live for me I believe Jesus died for me And I believe Jesus Christ rose again from the dead to save my soul. And I'm asking you to help me, God, in my life to turn away from my sinful past and to live my life completely for you. And Father, I pray for those that responded. I know they have heavy burdens. They have unanswered questions. There's a sense of emotion erupting inside of them. They recognize their distance from you as they they consider you as their creator. They don't have all the answers right now, but they have a sense of your love for them, and I pray that you would guard and protect them in their newfound commitment to you. I'm asking you, God, to help them. I hope that this was real and genuine, that we'll be able to see them grow in their relationship with you and that you would do wonders in their family and in their hearts and that their lives would bring you honor and glory like never before. And let us be encouraged, Lord. No one, anywhere, anytime is beyond your reach. And thank you for that truth and that reminder in Jesus' name. Amen. We pray that you've been encouraged by this Bible study delivered live from the sanctuary of Calvary Aurora. For prayer or a copy of this study, call us at 877-30-GRACE. That's 877-304-7223. Or visit us online at calvaryaurora.org. Be blessed as you worship Jesus this week.